give God a shout of praise this morning. Amen. Amen. Hey, you guys can go ahead and grab a seat. If you're a guest, welcome. My name is Byron. I get the great honor and the privilege to be able to serve here as the lead pastor. Thank you so much for spending your morning with us. I know you could be anywhere in Southeast Texas, but you made a decision to wake up and come downtown and hang out with us. And so for that, I wanna say thank you. In the seat back in front of you, there's one of these guys. It is a connect card, just a way for you to get connected with us. So fill it out with as much information as you would like, and then come swing by the connect desk after service to say hi. And if you have been coming for a bit, next Sunday is our Next Steps Sunday. And so it's an opportunity for you to get involved, for you to find a team, and for you to make redemption feel a little bit more like home. Me and my wife, Ashley, we'd love to be able to have lunch and um, get to know you a little bit better. So make a plan to come out to Next Steps in September. Hey, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Acts. We're continuing our study through the book of Acts, learning how the early church worked and operated, what made them special, and then learning some lessons about how we can apply it to our church here. So that way we can learn to be the church. While you're finding your spot, let me open up with a question. When you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Think about that for a moment. What did you want to be when you grew up? Just think about that. I'll tell you a little bit about what I wanted to be. In fact, I'll actually show you a picture. I wanted to be a Major League Baseball player. Look at this picture right there. Man, look at that slugger right there. Come on, right? Not only did I want to play baseball, but more specifically, I want to be the first baseman for the Houston Astros. Let's go, Stros. Any Astro fans in the room? Yeah, me too. Uh, what did you want to be when you grew up? I asked my daughters this, and they both said they wanted to be doctors. And then I thought, I need to get a better job because I'm going to have to pay for college. That's expensive. Come on, somebody. Uh, but what about you? What did you want to be when you grew up? I mean, we all had our heroes, people we admired or that we aspired to be like role models when we grew up. Now, there's a research that's been done where they ask this same question to uh, kids between the age of 9 and 15 years old. Most of us, when we wanted to think about who we were going to become when we grew up, we're, we're thinking about like doctors or police officers or baseball players. But not kids today, no. The number one dream job of kids between the age of 9 and 15 is a YouTuber. That's what they wanted to be, YouTubers or TikTok influencers or Instagram famous. I don't know about you, but how many of you think we need some better role models when it comes to our kids? Like they need to set their standards a little bit higher. We need to have some better people to look up to. Anybody else agree with me? Well, that's why we're going to study the life of a man named Stephen. We're going to meet a character today who I believe is a, a role model, not just for the early church, but for us together as a church. We're going to see what made him so special, and then we're going to learn some lessons, and then we're going to apply it to our lives as well, because he is a testimony of the type of person that we should all aspire to grow up in Christ to become like. And so if you have your Bibles, we're in Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 8, as we meet a man named Stephen. And here's the sermon title today. It's called, How to Do Great Things for God. 
Who wants to accomplish great things for God? Like raise your hand if you want to, to live a life that matters, if you want to live a life that counts, if you want to make a difference, be a part of something bigger than yourself. Give me an amen. If you want to leave a legacy, anybody want to do great things for God? Okay, we should all aspire to do great things with our lives for God. But there's gonna be some people in this room who automatically you've begun to disqualify yourself. You're, you're thinking, but I'm just an ordinary person. There's nothing special about me. I'm never going to accomplish great things for God. Like I, my whole life is I just wake up, I, I go to work, I raise my kids, and then on the weekends I come to church. It takes everything that I can just to make it a small group. Like I'm not gonna be some big world changer. You, that's what you think. You've already begun to disqualify yourself. You think there's nothing special about me. Maybe you, because, well, pastor, you're the pastor, and so you can do great things for God. Maybe missionaries can do great things for God, but not me. I'm just an everyday, ordinary, normal person. That's why you need to learn from Stephen, because Stephen teaches us, and here's the big idea for the message today. If you're taking notes, pull out your note sheet, write this down. We are a note-taking church here at Redemption. Here's the big idea, is that God loves to do extraordinary things through ordinary people. God loves to take ordinary people, bless them, change them, empower them so that way they can go and do extraordinary things. God loves to take a nobody from nowhere and turn them into a somebody to reach anybody everywhere. He loves to do great things through ordinary people. That's the life of Stephen. We met Stephen for the first time last week. And what it says is he wasn't an apostle. He wasn't a leader. He wasn't a, a religious official. He, he wasn't you know, the richest or the smartest or the brightest or the best dressed. He wasn't a doctor. He wasn't a politician. He wasn't a baseball player, nor did he have a YouTube. But here's what it tells us, is that he was a servant. That's what it teaches us, that he was just an ordinary person who was used by God, as we're going to see in the text this week, to do extraordinary things. You don't have to be Peter to be used by God. You don't have to be an apostle to be used by God. You don't have to be a leader to be used by God. You can be a servant, somebody who loves and trusts and surrenders themselves to God. And then God loves to be able to take that ordinary person and then turn their life around so they can accomplish extraordinary things. That's what we're gonna learn in the life of Stephen. And I believe, and it's my hope, it's my heart, and it's my prayer that God will do the same thing that he did in Stephen's life in your life. And so if you have your Bible, open up with me to Acts chapter six, starting in verse eight. We're gonna read the whole section. We're gonna do a little bit of theology. And then I want to give you three takeaways from the life of Stephen about how you can accomplish great things for God. So let's read it all up front. Here we go. And what's the word? It's Stephen. There's my boy, Stephen. It says, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those who were from Cilicia and Asia rose up and they disputed with Stephen. So now there's an argument, there's a debate that's happening. 
but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit of which Stephen was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and they seized him. And they brought him before the council and they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Verse 15, the last verse. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face was like that of an angel. Now, before we unpack this text, we're going to have to do a little bit of theology. What I always say is, in order to understand the text, you need to understand the context. So let's do a little context. We're in chapter 6. The book of Acts has 28 chapters. This is the 20th sermon in our study through the book of Acts. So we got a little ways to go. Buckle up, buttercup. We're going to be here for a hot minute. But where we're at right now is we're about one-third of the way through our study. And it all centers around this line in Acts 1-8 where Jesus says, You will be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Up until this point in our study through the book of Acts, the primary location has been in the region of Jerusalem. So they're meeting in the temple, they're meeting at homes the church is in Jerusalem. This is where Jesus' death, burial, resurrection took place. This is where Jesus gave them the great commission. And then this is also where Jesus ascended to the heaven. And this is where Pentecost happened and the church exploded with growth. It was all centered in Jerusalem. Well, Acts 6 marks a shift in the book to where now most of the ministry is not going to be in Jerusalem, but rather it's going to be in the region of Judea and Samaria. And this is important because what we see is the church is called to be his witnesses, the church is called to reach the nations, to preach the gospel, and to change the world. And they can't do it if they're centrally located in Jerusalem. Eventually, it's going to have to begin to spread out. And so the church begins to move from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. It is a shift in the place of which ministry is being done. The second thing we notice is it is a shift in characters. Now, last week, what we learned is that the church had grown in the first couple of years up to 20 Maybe 30,000 people have all become Christians and got baptized in a very short time. And we learned that it was the apostles that were taking care of everybody. So 12 pastors leading a church of 20,000 plus people. As you can tell, things got very complicated and very complex. So they needed to reorganize the church. And in order to do so, they begin to raise up leaders and release them so that way they can begin to do the ministry. We're going to notice in this section that Peter's going to start taking a step back. And now other leaders are going to begin to rise up. Two men in particular, Stephen and Philip, that we're going to spend the next several weeks learning about their life. And this is also incredibly important because this marks the moment in the book of Acts where people stop going to church and they start being the church. 
It's where they stop being consumers, but they begin to be contributors. It's where they stop being spectators, expecting other people to serve them, but rather they become participators as they begin to serve Jesus and they serve others. So first, it's a shift in location. The second thing, it's a shift in leaders. But the third thing we recognize in this text is that there is another character that's in the shadows who's eventually going to become in the forefront. And we meet him right here. And it's in this line where it says this, where it says that those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. Now, it doesn't give us any names, but next week we're going to see the grand reveal of this character. And many of you, you know him by the name of Saul or the Apostle Paul. That's right. The Apostle Paul was a member of the synagogue of the freedmen. So what is the synagogue of the freedmen? It was Hellenist Jews that were originally slaves, and then they became set free. They go from being Roman slaves to being Roman citizens, and they retained their Jewish culture, heritage, and the religious beliefs. They moved back into Jerusalem, and they started their own synagogue of freedmen. Paul was one of these, and here's the cool connection, because a few weeks ago in chapter 5, whenever they were arrested and thrown in prison, when they were about to be killed, a rabbi named Gamaliel stood up and he said, do not do what you're going to do to these men, because if it's from God, you can't stop it. But if you oppose it, then you'd be found opposing God. That was Gamaliel. Well, in Acts chapter 20, or even later in the book of Galatians, or Philippians, I believe, Paul says, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I studied under Gamaliel. So Paul, in this text, is standing in the shadows. Well, we all know the story is that Saul would later become Paul, and he would become a missionary to reach the Gentiles, those who are far from God, those who are not Jewish, people like you and me, and he would take the gospel to the ends of the earth. What we see happening in this chapter is the fulfillment of the Great Commission in Acts 1.8, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What we are witnessing is the Great Commission taking place. So why do I tell you all of that? Two reasons. Number one, because this is redemption and we love theology. The Bible is fun, amen? It's just fun to learn theology. So that's free. You get what you pay for. But two, because it teaches us the secret to having a great church. Like, why are we studying the book of Acts? Because we want to be the church. We don't just want to read about the church. We want to be the church. We want to take the same lessons that they live by, and we want to apply those to our lives so that way we can live by them. And here's the big idea, is that a great commitment to the great commission is what makes you a great Christian. Like you want to do great things for God? There is nothing you will do that is greater than being committed to fulfilling the Great Commission. You want to see God do great things in your life? Make a commitment to fulfilling the Great Commission because that's what makes not only a great church, but that's also what makes us great Christians. To be his witnesses everywhere, to anyone, all of the time, to share our faith, to tell our testimony, to tell our story, to reach people 
people who are far from God and to help more people experience life change through Jesus. And when we give ourselves to the great commission, that is when God begins to do extraordinary things through ordinary people. The great commission wasn't just given to the apostles. It was given to all of us. It wasn't a suggestion. It wasn't an option. No, it was a command to go and to make disciples and to be his witnesses. And as we make a commitment as a church towards the Great Commission, I believe that God's going to do great things in us and through us and all around us. And so before we move on, I got a couple of challenges that I want to give to us here at Redemption. The first challenge is I want you to take one of these Invite cards on your way out today. Go ahead, grab a couple of them, pray over them, lay hands on them. And then throughout the week, I want you to be asking yourself, okay, God, who do you want me to invite to church? God, who do you want me to share my faith with? God, who do you want me to start a conversation with? Maybe a friend, maybe a family member, maybe somebody from the gym or a coworker. Take some time this week and be intentional around inviting somebody to church. The second thing is on September 17th, we're going to be having Baptism Sunday. Who's excited for baptisms? Can we give it up for those who are getting baptized? That's amazing. So um, on September 17th, it's Baptism Sunday. That's a part of the Great Commission. Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In Acts 2, whenever the multitudes were saved, immediately they were all baptized. If you're here and you are a Christian, you've made a decision to follow Jesus and you've not yet been baptized, can I just tell you, the Bible knows nothing of a Christian that has not been baptized. Take that step of faith, get in those baptism waters and let the church celebrate the life change that he's done in you. So you can sign up for baptisms, but this is really important to me and it's this, is that if you have already been baptized, if you call Redemption Home, would you do me a big favor? Would you pull out your calendar and would you clear your schedule on that day? So that way you can come and watch your church fulfill the Great Commission. Because it's that commitment. Say, I'm committed to this commission. I'm committed to the Great Commission. I'm going to move heaven and earth to be at church on that Sunday so I can celebrate my brothers and sisters who have experienced life change. And when we all do that, when we're committed to the Great Commission, I believe it's not only going to make us a great church, but it's also going to help us become better Christians. Can I get an amen? All right, all right. So with that, what lessons can we learn from the life of Stephen. I'm going to show you three things that we can pull out from the text and we can begin to apply to our lives so that way we can accomplish great things for God. Number one, if you want to accomplish great things for God, develop godly character. We have to go back last week where we met him and then we can learn a few things about the character of Stephen. Listen to what it says here in verse 6-3. It says this, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom then we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. The, the first thing we notice about Stephen is that he was a man of good reputation. Or another way to say it is this, that he had godly character. Like when the leaders were, were looking for somebody to step up and serve, hey, who can we get to help? The entire church. They all pointed, they said, Stephen is a man of good reputation because they recognized that Stephen had great character. Now notice this, when they were looking for the qualifications of this leader, 
they, they weren't asking who's the most talented. They weren't asking who's the smartest. They weren't asking who's got a PhD or who studied philosophy or, or who's the wealthiest or who's the best dressed or who's the one who has everything together. No, that's not what they were looking for. What were they looking for? They were looking for character. They were not looking for talent, but rather they were looking for character. And the first thing you need to know about accomplishing great things for God is this, is that God does not use us based upon our ability, but rather our availability. Like if you want to be used by God, you have to make yourself available to him. Say, God, here I am. Use me. God, I'm trusting in you. I have surrendered to you. I will lay down my life for you. God, I am able to be available. God, please use me. Whatever you can, use me. Listen, God rarely uses the most talented. God rarely uses the most successful. God rarely uses the, the people who have it all together. No, here's the people that God loves to use. He loves to use the broken. He loves to use those who are humble. He loves to use those who, who are ordinary because when God takes an ordinary person who has surrendered to him, he's able to do extraordinary things. You know why? Because then he gets the glory. He gets the glory for what he does in you. He gets the glory for what he does through you. He gets the glory for what he does around you. God loves to take ordinary people and do extraordinary things. And he doesn't do it based on their abilities, but rather he does it based upon their, their availability. Like if you want to be used by God, just make yourself available. This is the reason why when you walk out the doors of our church, we have those three words on the wall. What does it say? Keep showing up. Like if you want to be used by God, you just got to show up. You just got to be present. You just got to be in the room. You have to continually make yourself available. And then we read this in verse 8. It says this, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. What is that? That's an ordinary person doing extraordinary things. And it wasn't Peter. No, it was just an ordinary person like Stephen. It wasn't an apostle. No, it was just a guy who was on the serve team who was doing extraordinary things. Why? Because he made himself available to be used by God. And right now, some of you are thinking, okay, but that's just, that's still just not me. You're, you're selling yourself out. You're discrediting yourself. But I just want to show you that you have in you the same thing that Stephen had in him. You have it right here, grace and power. If you're a Christian, can I just tell you, you have the grace of God on your life. That's right. Because we are saved by grace, not by our works, but we are saved by his grace. And so if you've made a decision to follow Jesus, you have experienced his grace. But it gets better from there because we also learn that you also have received the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says that you will receive power, not you might receive power or you occasionally receive power or you may be are able to receive power. No, he says, you will. That is a guarantee and that is a promise. Paul later picks up this promise and he says, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that now lives within you. You have what Stephen had. You have grace and you have power, which means you're able to do amazing things when God works through you for his glory and for the good of others. Look what it says here about Stephen. It says that he was able to, to accomplish great things. What are these? Signs, wonders, miracles. 
but it says megos. When you see that word megos in the Greek, it, it means supernatural. It's otherworldly. It's, it's the finger of God upon his life. Megos, miracles, mega miracles, mega signs, mega wonders. I think this is a, important to note right here is that this is one of the Achilles heels to the doctrine of cessationism. What is cessationism? It's a, it's a teaching that's out there that says that the, the gifts or the miraculous signs of the Holy Spirit are no longer available for believers today because they were only for the apostles and they were to authenticate their message. Well, Stephen was not an apostle. He was just an ordinary person, just like you and me. He was not a pastor. He was just a guy who was on the serve team. But he had the grace of God on his life. He had the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. And God was able to use him to accomplish great things. He was used by God. And here's what I believe. That what God did in Stephen's life is the same thing that God wants to do in your life. Like God wants to use you no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you're at, no matter who your mama is. God wants to do great things in you and God wants to do great things things through you. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're 17 or 70, God wants to use you. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or black or white, Latino, Asian, male or female, God wants to use you. It doesn't matter if you're in high school or if you are a high school teacher, God wants to use you. It doesn't matter if you shop at HEB or if you shop at Dollar Tree, God wants to use you. It doesn't matter if you have an iPhone or an Android God wants to use you to do great things. The only thing you need to do to be used by God is to make yourself available. The more available you are to God, the more God is then able to begin to use you. There's a verse in the Bible that says he is not a respecter of persons. That means what he did for Stephen, he will do for you. What God did in Stephen's life, God will do in your life. And here's my heart and prayer that if you call redemption home that you would grow up and you would become a man or a woman with the character that Stephen demonstrated in his life. Amen? So the first thing we do is we, 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 we develop this godly character. Number two, we learn this, is we display godly courage. The story continues. Here's what we read in verse 9. Verse 9 picks up and it says this. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, or as it was called, of the Syrians, of the Alexandrians, and those who were from Sicilia and Asia, they rose up and they disputed against Stephen. So now there's a confrontation. He's doing signs and wonders. He's preaching. And then the, the, the religious leaders, they become offended. And now they're going to step in and they're going to start a fight. I want you to know that for every opportunity, there will be opposition. For every time you get excited about Jesus, somebody's going to come in and they're going to try to pour water on that passion and get you to die down and get you to quiet out a little bit. For every opportunity, there is also an opposition. But here's what we continue reading, that they were not... With able to withstand the wisdom of the spirit in which he was speaking. This reminds me of a verse in Luke chapter 12, 11, where Jesus says this. He says, when they bring you before the synagogues and rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Next week, we're gonna learn more about Stephen's defense. We're gonna listen to his sermon. We're gonna see his showdown with the religious leaders, and we're gonna learn more about how to preach the gospel and to witness to others. But for now, I just want to encourage you to be of courageous cheer. 
to be of good cheer and to be strong and to be bold and to be courageous when it comes to living out your faith. We want to be like Stephen and we don't want to back down. We don't want to be quiet. We don't want to be silenced. We want to be bold and we want to be courageous. Look where the story goes. Then they secretly instigated men who would have had, who, who heard, who have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and they seized him and they brought him before the council and they set up the false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs from what Moses had delivered to us. Now, did he say any of those things? No, not at all. These are all lies. They're false accusations that they've begun to, to make against Stephen. Now, the question is, when the temperature gets hot, when people get offended, when people get angry, when the mob shows up, what does Stephen do? Does he retreat? Does he apologize? Does he pull back? Does, does he get on Twitter and, and, and delete his messages? What does he do? No, he stands firm. He doesn't back down. He stands strong, he stays bold, and we see that he is very courageous. He kept witnessing regardless what the outcome was. He kept speaking regardless of what people thought, and he kept sharing the gospel, even if it meant that he was going to get in trouble. Listen, there's a saying today that's been ingrained in evangelical Christianity, and it goes like this. It says that you are to preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. I understand the sentiment behind that, but could I just tell you that's not in the Bible because it is always necessary to use words when you preach the gospel. Yes, we can show the world our good works, but they are only saved when they hear the good news, which is the gospel. And we must preach the gospel with our words, not just with our works. And I understand why there's a lot of people who, who gravitate towards this quote because I believe it makes them feel better about themselves for not sharing the gospel. It, it eases their guilt for not being bold and being courageous. It gives them permission to be comfortable. And that's the reason that people have such a hard time sharing the gospel. Can I just tell you that God has never called you to be comfortable? There is not a verse anywhere in the Bible where it says, be safe and be comfortable for I am with you. No, it says, be bold and be courageous. Be strong and courageous for I, your God, am with you. Yes, it does refer to the Holy Spirit as the comforter. But do you know why the Spirit is called the comforter? Because your life is to be uncomfortable. It's good to be uncomfortable. You grow when you make yourself uncomfortable. God wants you to be comfortable. He never called you to play it safe. He never chose you to be lukewarm. He never said, do the bare minimum that you can to get into heaven by the hair of your chitty chitty chin or the skin of your teeth. No, he wants you to be bold. He wants you to be courageous. He has called you by the Holy Spirit to be bold, to be courageous. And in order to do that, we have to stop playing it safe, church. We have to stop making it comfortable to be a Christian. We gotta bring back godly courage. And here's how we do that. We have to stop being afraid and we have to start living by faith. God did not give you a spirit of fear. 
Over the last several years, there's been a spirit of fear that has been unleashed all across our nation. Christians are afraid and they are timid and they are scared to share their faith because what if they get canceled or what if they get mocked or what if they get made fun of or what if they lose a relationship? And so we have forfeited ground for the gospel and rather than advancing the kingdom, we're retreating in fear. God has never called us to be afraid. He has always called us to be strong and to be courageous for he did not give us a spirit of fear but a power of love and with a sound mind. Stephen models this example of the Christian life. And I share this stat with you. I share it all the time but some of you are new and so you haven't heard it before but a few years ago Barna Research they, they, they did a, a study on evangelism in America and they've discovered that 95% of evangelical Christians have not yet led one person to Jesus during their lifetime. The last words of Jesus were, go make disciples of all nations, or in Acts 1.8, to be his witnesses. Those were the last words of Jesus. It was not a suggestion, it was a command, it was the Great Commission. And yet 95% of Christians have not yet led one person to Jesus throughout their lifetime. Whenever I ask people in our church, What's your, what's your biggest concern about, about sharing your faith? What, what's, the, what's the number one reason why you, you don't witness or invite a friend or you don't sit down with somebody and, and lead them to, to Jesus? There's a dozen answers that I get, but it all stems back to one big reason is this. It's fear. I'm afraid that that they're not gonna accept or I'm afraid that they're gonna get offended or maybe they're gonna get upset or maybe it's gonna be awkward. It's, it's fear. What if they ask a question that I don't know the answer to? And so you're afraid of the awkwardness or you're afraid of the embarrassment. But I have to ask you this question. You really only have two options. Which one would you prefer? You to be embarrassed for five minutes or for them to spend eternity in hell? Those are really the options. There is no plan B. It's either our awkwardness or their soul. It's either our embarrassment or it's their salvation. We have to understand that the Great Commission was not a suggestion. It was a command. It was what Jesus told us to do, that we will be his witnesses. And Stephen is standing up and he is not backing down. He is being bold. He is being strong. And he is preaching the gospel. And I think one of the other reasons that people struggle when it comes to share their faith is because they assume upon a person what God may or may not be doing in their life. And so you, you, you can't talk yourself out of sharing the gospel. Well, well, maybe they'll accept it. Maybe they won't. Maybe they'll listen. Maybe they don't. Like, they're already too far from God. I, I know they're not interested. Like, like they're an atheist or, or, you know, like they're in a relationship that's not godly. And so I'm not going to invite them to church because I know that they're not going to come. Or you, you make up all these excuses and reasons about why they're going to say no before you ever even give them a chance to say yes. But I want to point something out to you. Who was right here out of the synagogue of freed men? It was Paul. Like if anybody would have been too far from God, too far to be saved, Paul later goes on and says, I was the chief of sinners. I was the sinner of all sinners, and yet God saved me. Paul was the one who was arguing with Stephen. 
He was the one who was debating him. He was the one in the synagogue of the freed men. And what do we see? In just two chapters, Saul becomes Paul, the greatest missionary the world has ever seen. You don't know what God's doing in somebody's life. You don't know what God's doing in somebody's heart. You don't know who God has saved, God has chosen. You don't know what God wants to do. And so don't say no for them. Give them an invitation to follow Jesus. Like this is the reason why I preach out of this Bible. Like, you, you, I preach out of this Bible every single week. And it's not because it's the translation that we teach out of here, because it's not actually. I tape my notes inside the Bible. There's a, a different reason that I preach out of this Bible. I, I preach out of this Bible because this is the Bible that my Nana gave me when I was sitting in jail. 20 years ago, I got arrested. I got three felony counts of possession of crystal meth and a DWI. And I spent six months in jail waiting to go to court. And, and facing a prison or I got probation sentence. And my Nana gave me this Bible and I had nowhere to go and nothing to do. And so I sit in jail and I read the Bible. And I wasn't saved in the jail, but the Lord began stirring in my heart. And it wasn't until after I got out, I met a girl named Ashley and she invited me to church. I went to church that Sunday and I gave my life to Jesus. And my life has been changed ever since. Now, if you would have seen me 20 years ago, there is no way you would have said, that guy's gonna become a pastor one day. That guy's going to have a beautiful family. He's going to have a great wife, two beautiful little girls. You would never look at me and say, like, that guy's going to do great things for God. You, you never would have said that. But that's exactly what God does. God loves to take people where they're at and change them for his glory. He loves to take ordinary people and do extraordinary things. And so every single week, whenever I'm preaching, I always preach out of this Bible. And the reason I preach out of this Bible is because I always want to remind myself that there is no one that is beyond the grace of God. There is no one beyond the hand of God. There is no one that is too far from God that he can reach anyone, anywhere, anytime, no matter where they're at, no matter what they've done, and he can change their life forever. And so I remind myself every time I preach that there's people in the room who have been counted out, but God has called them and welcomed them in. And so I preach out of this because it reminds me, Byron, you need to be bold. You need to be courageous. And we need to develop that godly courage once again in our churches. Which leads us to the third and to the, to the final lesson we can learn from Stephen is this, is that we desire godly countenance. Look at verse 15. Look what it says here. It says, gazing at him, all who sat in the council, they saw that his face was like that of an angel. So what have we learned from Stephen? Three things. The, the first thing is we have learned that he has displayed godly character. The second thing is that he has a godly courage. And lastly, maybe most importantly, the one that ties it all together is number three, he, he has a godly countenance on him. I, I was reading this section, and as I was studying this week, it's like, that's interesting, a face like an angel. As they gazed upon him, they saw his face like an angel. Like, what does that mean? It, it means that the glory of God was shining through his life. What's fascinating about this, if you go back to the book of Exodus, the only other time this language is ever used is speaking about Moses. Moses said, God, show me your face. God said, I can't. So turn around and I'll go past you. And then you can see my glory. 
And it says that Moses' face was radiant so much that when they came down, people are like, hey, you need to put a veil over because, because your face is just shining the glory of God. And if you remember, what was the accusation they made against Stephen? They said, he's blaspheming Moses. And so God, in his humor, said, okay, if you think that he's blaspheming Moses, then I'm just going to make Stephen look more like Moses. His countenance was changed in that moment. And I began thinking about it and thinking about it, thinking about it. Like, like how can we learn from this? And, and, and here's the takeaway that I want to give you is this. When people see you, do they see Jesus? Like when people look at your life, your, your non-believing friends or maybe your spouse or, or your children. When people see you, the way you talk, the way you think, the way you act. The way, that you, the way that you live, like when people see you, do, do they say, that looks like somebody who spent time with God. That looks like somebody who's been with Jesus. Like when people see you, do they see Jesus? I think that's an important question that we need to ask ourselves because when they saw Stephen, they didn't just see Stephen, they saw Jesus. And my prayer for, for my life and my prayer for all of us who call redemption home is that when people see us, they see Jesus. They see Jesus in us. Like the way that we love looks like Jesus. The way that we serve, that it would look like Jesus. The way that we forgive our enemies would look like Jesus. The way we bless people without expecting something in return. Does it look like Jesus when we help people knowing they can't do anything for us? Does it look like Jesus? The way that we talk and the way that we share the gospel, the way that we invite people, like the way that we give and serve, the way that we love, does it, does it look like Jesus? Can people see Jesus in us? Like my prayer for us as a church is like, when people come to redemption, I don't want them to see redemption. I want them to see Jesus. Like when you're listening to this message, like I don't want you to be like, oh, Byron, he's so great, or that message was so good. No, here's what I want you to think. I want you to think about Jesus. When our worship is, is, our team's leading us in worship, like I want them to point you to Jesus. Like I want our entire church, I want your life. My prayer is that everything we do is just pointing people back to Jesus. So my question is, man, when people see you, do they, do they see Jesus in you? That's the countenance. That's the peace. That's the joy. That's the grace of God on our lives. And some of you right now, you're thinking, but Byron, that's Stephen. Can I remind you that Stephen was not Peter? People say, but, but, but I'm, just, I'm just an ordinary person. I know, and so was Stephen. Say, I'm not special. I'm on the parking team, or I, I, I'm just in a small group. I don't even lead one. I barely signed up. I was late. I missed last week. I'm going to go this week. I haven't even been to next steps. Like, I'm not special. Neither was Stephen. He was just an ordinary person who surrendered his life. And God did extraordinary things through him. Like, when I think of role models or who we should aspire to be like, I think we should aspire to be like Stephen. Just an ordinary guy who was used by God to do extraordinary things. I believe what God did in Stephen's life 
is the same thing that God wants to do in your life. So how does he do it? He does it by developing your character. To be filled with grace and to be full of power. He does it by building your courage. By not playing it safe, but by stepping out in faith. And he does it through the Holy Spirit countenance. Spending time in his presence in such a way that when people see you, they don't see you, but rather they see Jesus in you. And some of you in the room, you're still counting yourself out. You're like, that's great, Byron, but that's a Bible verse. This is real life. That's Stephen. This is me. Can I just remind you what I've been saying throughout this entire series as we study the book of Acts? Is the Bible doesn't just tell us who God is or what God did. It tells us what God does. The Bible doesn't just tell us what happened. The Bible tells us what happens. The, the Bible is timeless, therefore it's, it's timely. And this is a timely word just for you where you're at. And here's the big idea we've said throughout this whole message is this. If God did it then, then God can do it again. If God did it in Stephen's life, God can do it in your life. If God did it for them, then God can do it for us. And my prayer is that because God did it in their church, I believe God wants to do it in our church as well. I believe that God wants and is looking for men and women like Stephen. Men and women of character. Men and women of courage. And men and women of countenance. What would redemption look like if everyone who called redemption home wanted to grow up and be like Stephen? What would our church look like if across four services, 600 people, if we all read the life of Stephen and said, I want to be like Stephen? What would our church look like? I'll tell you what our church would look like. Our church would look like the church. This is the type of church I believe God is wanting to build here at Redemption. I believe this is the type of person that God is wanting to bring to redemption. And I believe that if you and me would learn from the life of Stephen and we would apply it to our lives, then God would take it, God would bless it, and God would use it. Why? Because God loves to use ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. And that means you. With every head bowed and every eye closed, God, I pray for the people in this room today, Lord, that they would be men and women filled with grace and power right now. That they would go all in. They would hold nothing back. And they would lay it all down. They would surrender themselves. And they'd say, God, here I am. Use me. And that you would fill them with your spirit. And you'll send them out to be your witnesses in our church in the same way you did in their church. And that you would use us to do great things for you. And all God's people said, amen. Hey, can we give it up for the word of God today? Amen. Amen.